The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. Uh, he's a trader and editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report uh, put out by Money News. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Sean. Good to be with you. Let's just start with a little bit of your background. You've been in the financial markets for a long time. Uh, tell us a little bit about more your background and uh, the founding of Ultimate Wealth Report. Yeah, I've been in the markets for a little over 20 years. Uh, started off in the uh, stock market and uh, working for Charles Schwab as a broker there. Worked my way up into management there and then uh, later on went into the currency market for country, uh, currency trading market maker FXCM. And so I've got a mixture of um, stocking and currency background there. And then also, of course, I've widely followed commodities the whole time because of how they affect stocks and both currencies. So that's where the ultimate wealth came uh, came out of. It's basically a monthly publication where people can follow exact trade recommendations uh, in order to position their wealth to fight inflation and even profit from it. Okay, so let's get into it here. Uh, you say that there's a currency war uh, going on. Uh, I mean, we've got the Federal Reserve here announced their quantitative easing. The third, people are, I guess, calling it quantitative easing infinity because there's no limit to how long it could go. Uh, the Japanese have recently launched a quantitative easing program. The Europeans are buying the, the bonds of Italy and Spain to keep interest rates down there. Um, and yet there seems to be officially no or very little inflation out there. Why are you worried about a inflationary outbreak uh, with all these quantitative easing programs going on? I think eventually it's inevitable. I mean, anytime you print more dollars, um, you've got more dollars chasing a finite amount of goods. And so there comes a point where that gets out into the economy and starts stoking inflation. Uh, lately, you've had corporations paying down debt, individuals paying down debt, uh, socking away money. So the, the money's not really getting out there and being used a lot just yet. So the money multiplier effect really is not there. But once that does begin to happen, you're going to see quite a bit of uh, – of inflation plus these guys just put on you know what i think is just like both both barrels blazing um with so many central banks uh intervening and 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 uh, stimulating all at the same time so i think it's just a matter of time before that has a pronounced effect upon the global economy what would raise money velocity in other words the multiplier effect right now that's pretty low uh people are keeping a lot of money in savings and checking accounts pretty much earning zero uh, banks have lots of money. I mean, uh, corporations have lots of money in the balance sheet they're not using. So velocity is very low. What would turn that around and kind of explain that process and how that starts kicking off inflation? Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, people start coming out of defensive mode and start spending money again. Um, you know, uh, car sales have seen a boost because, you know, people have held off so long for spending on cars. The same thing is starting to happen with uh, home sales. You know, it's 
uh, home prices are starting to stabilize and turn around because people have held off so long on homes. So I think you're starting to see the beginning stages of that now, but I still think we've got a, quite a while longer before that happens. But basically, they come out of uh, almost hoarding mode back into uh, some form of spending mode, and the velocity of money uh, happens just as you have the money, the same bills circulate around. So if I go, you know, and pay money at the gas pump, and then the guy that owns the uh, gas station takes that money, and then he goes down to the local bakery and buys donuts, and then the baker takes that money, that same money, and goes and buys some equipment for his bakery and so forth. That money starts circulating and making uh, a circle, and so the same dollar bills have a multiplied effect as they touch and affect different businesses, and you start to get a multiplier effect there and, and what they call the velocity of money. That's been the one missing ingredient that I believe will uh, happen uh, probably sooner rather than later. Is this something the Federal Reserve and the central banks, the European Central Bank, uh, know and are choosing to ignore, or is it something they don't really understand? I think they do know it's out there, and they do understand it. Um, they just feel confident that basically if this were to start to happen, that they can suck all this money back out of the system about as fast as they got it pumped in. Um, and I just don't think they'll be able to do that. So, you know, my bet is that they can't and won't be able to, and their bet is that they will be able to. What have been a similar period in uh, history uh, where you had a situation like this? Was it the early 70s uh, that kind of took off the inflation in the late 70s? Or what, what other periods are similar to what you're seeing today? Yeah, late 70s, I think, is a pretty accurate uh, depiction of, of what I believe will come because, you you know, you had asset prices rising. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, you've got to have this great, huge economic expansion for asset prices to rise like this and cause inflation. But we didn't have that at all in the uh, in the 1970s, and I think that's why it's a good analogy for what we've got today. So you don't have to have robust um, economies to stoke inflation. That's only one way for it to happen, but you can actually – Stoke price inflation simply by printing money and raising inflation. So the last rounds of QE that we've done have not promoted growth, but they have promoted uh, inflation, and that's when we saw oil prices rise and food prices globally rise and that sort of thing. And I think we'll, you know, definitely see that again with more central banks participating all at once. Is it different now than the '70s in that you're going into the situation like in the United States, we have 16 trillion in debt. There's huge amounts of debt in, in Europe and Greece and Spain and Italy and so on. Uh, Japan has a huge amount of debt. I mean, they're doing quantitative easing at a time when these countries already are overwhelmed with huge amounts of debt. What's the difference between doing that and, say, in the 70s where you didn't go into it with these huge amounts of debt? Well, the difference then was at least there was more hope of coming back out of it because you weren't on the hook for so much uh, debt. It's almost like if everybody you knew was up to their eyeballs and credit card debt. I mean, the, the recovery is going to be uh, slow and, and, and a long process versus if people really had a lot more firepower and weren't as deeply in debt as they, they have been. So I think it is possible to turn it around. I don't know if they'll ever pay off the debt at this rate, but it, if they don't uh, turn something around pretty soon, uh, it'll only be probably, you know, just a few years off before we can't even service the uh, interest on our debt. And so that's job number one is to turn it around enough to, you know, to make sure they can continue to do that while eventually bringing down the debt. But you've got to get a, you know, Congress um, and your presidential candidates, um, you know, willing to want to do that. They haven't, haven't even passed, passed a budget in the last four years. So there's not been a lot of motivation lately. 
So is the, the upcoming fiscal cliff uh, motivation to start getting this under control? I think it's motivation for them to try to push things out as much as they can and to delay things past the November elections so that they can predominantly deal with a lot of it or as much as they can in 2013. Um, so that that's what I, I think they're more focused about and worried about the election uh, more so than anything else, dealing with any long-term debt problems. So anything that can be pushed out will be pushed out so that they can focus on politics and re-elections at the moment. What if we get a, a, a election result that pretty much is the same we have now? No matter who wins, win, wins the presidency, uh, pretty much a deadlock situation where neither side can push ahead with its agenda. What, what happens then as the debt keeps piling up? Well, no doubt the debt will still be the same no matter who takes office, and the debt will be on an increase at first because of the momentum that's already been happening there. It's a, a snowball that's heading in the wrong direction. Um, but if you have Obama uh, reelected, then you will have, you know, capitalists and uh, business owners really keep their pocketbooks a lot more tight than if you have Romney uh, elected because it's more capitalistic, more uh, corporate friendly. And so he would uh, basically improve the, the sentiment, cause a lot of corporations to open up their wallets a bit more uh, as they felt a little better about the future. And you would see a lot more jobs created and a lot more growth. And at least it would probably start us heading in that way. But I'm not sure even uh, any president in the next, you know, four years is going to tackle it and rebalance things from from the point at which we're at right now. So, okay, let's say that, that happens. There really isn't any major change in the deficit. We keep adding a trillion or a trillion and a half to the debt every year. Is there a certain point at which it breaks? We we can't go any further. I mean, kind of what happened to Greece this year? The debt, the creditors just say. No more. I mean, is, is that potentially what would happen to the United States? I mean, anything like that is possible. Um, I think, you know, if, if, if central banks around the world have to help uh, support the, um, the U.S. at a certain point, I believe that they would to buffer that, much like uh, China went in and buffered some of the blow that uh, Europe was having because they're such a huge economy. They can't afford for uh, Europe to just totally go down the tubes, and they're huge uh, – customers of China. So I think uh, countries like Europe, China, Japan, some others would have a lot of incentive to help do their part in trying to prop up the U.S. if for no other reason because of how much it would affect themselves. Um, so that, but you, you keep using the word prop up. I mean, can you just do that forever or is there a certain point at which, I mean, if our debt grew to 25 trillion, 30 trillion or something like that, is there a certain point at which it's just unsustainable and, and we default, or what? Kind of what is the end game there? I, I think there could be a default um, in, in you know in our debt, and I do think that it is not ultimately sustainable. Um, I think uh, basically what will happen is the you know the U.S. will follow um, Great Britain in that they used to be the world leader, the world superpower. Um, they held the world's reserve currency, and you know today they are. Somewhat of a viable power in the world, but not near on top like what they were. And I believe that's where the U.S. is heading uh, in those same footsteps. Is it reversible? I mean, are there steps that could be taken if there was a political will to uh, reverse that decline that you're talking about? Um, I think it's possible um, because I, I think that you could do enough things to stoke enough uh, corporate growth that would cause enough GDP growth uh, to eventually uh, 
turn it around or, or at least make it manageable to where you didn't have the defaults, but it would take a ton of political will. And so I think the uh, politicians would just about have to be at the breaking point at the end of their rope, and they would also have to feel that the uh, the public was just about to throw them all out of office uh, for not uh, not fixing it because that's the only thing they really respond to. What have we learned from what's happened in Greece in the last year or so, kind of the end game? Because they, they've gotten to that point where they really couldn't borrow anymore. They had to make a deal with the creditors to, to get the money to avoid default, basically. What have we learned from the Greek experience that might apply to us? I don't know if the U.S. has learned anything from uh, the Greece experience. I mean, the benefit that Greece has is at least that it's a, uh, a small economy and it's not sizable like uh, Europe or the U.S. or Japan, and so it's not going to have near as big of an economic impact uh, upon the world as a Greece would, no matter what would happen there. The stakes, you know, are multifold, um, you know, for what would happen with the uh, with the U.S., but I'm not sure we've done anything different, really, than Greece. It just D-Day hasn't happened for us yet, and it has happened for them. I think that's really the only difference. Very good. Okay. We're going to take a break, uh, and we're going to get into the investment implications of what Sean Hyman's view are. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Sean Hyman. Uh, he is the editor of The Ultimate Wealth Report, uh, published by Money News. Uh, he does have a website, which is uh, ccurrencywars.com. Is that correct? Yes. Very good. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and is the co-founder of BR Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about the show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? 
Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. He is the editor of The Ultimate Wealth Report, published by Money News and Newsmax. There's a website to find out more about it, which is ccurrencywars.com. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Good to be here. So let's talk about the currency wars you're talking about here and how the scenario we just talked about, about all these countries and central banks pumping out all this money. Are they trying to devalue their currency as kind of a beggar thy neighbor strategy? Is that what's going on when you mean by currency wars? Yeah, they're trying to, you know, devalue their currency um, and kind of get one leg up on another and uh, hopefully to enhance their exports because it's probably the easiest uh, area to, uh, to to kind of bolster, and it's just an easy way, you know, print money and bring that down, and, and more money is likely going to come into your exports. But if everybody starts playing that game, then, of course, that's where the challenge comes in, and then it's just a matter of who, who seems to be able to do it best or get one up on uh, each other, and they just keep taking turns going back and forth, dividing their currencies against one another. Again, give some historical perspective here. When has this happened in the past where you had these kind of competitive devaluations to boost exports, and how did it turn out? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there's there's been everything from Germany to Argentina to you know different ones throughout history who have, who, you know, who have done this. And I'm of course I'm not probably near as good of a currency historian as somebody like my buddy Jim Ricards is, but you know, it's nobody's ever been able to to, to devalue their way into prosperity. It's it's never happened historically. Um, you can go back to Roman Empire where they start chipping away and having less, you know, gold and silver in their coins, and just uh, even even these other forms of devaluations, which are a little different from what we do today. None of it worked, and none of it brought about prosperity. It, it brought about the collapse of empires. So, is that what you're expecting to happen here? I think we, to to the extent that we are no longer the top man on the totem pole. Um, you know, will we be in the top four, five, or six uh, economies? Possibly so, but I think we're doing enough damage inflicted by ourselves to where we can all but guarantee we are going to come out of the top spot and drop, you know, three, four, five notches pretty easily. Now, the big one that I'm going to call a currency manipulator is China, which has mm-hmm. kept its currency artificially low by limiting the movements of the, their uh, yuan renminbi currency. Mm-hmm. What is your outlook for China and, and the currency wars? Well, you know, in the past, China has done that, but it's it's like the old saying, calling the, uh, the 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 pot calling the kettle black. I mean, we 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 do the same thing that they do. They just get the blame for it openly, and China doesn't, uh, you know, turn around and, and blast us as much as as we blast them. But you know, all you got to do is look at a chart of the U.S. dollar index, and you can see that we've been devaluing the dollar overall 
for the most part ever since we came off the gold standard. So we're just as much of a victim or, or, or guilty rather of that as, as they are. I think they have devalued or, or kept their currency low enough to uh, artificially boost their economy higher and higher uh, and to do better. But I think also there's coming a time now where China is getting prosperous and wealthy enough and their wages are having to come up enough to where they're going to have to uh, basically uh, end up raising the value of their currency. And a lot of people are going to become the buyers or the sellers to China, rather, and China is going to start buying more from the rest of the world. And as that does that, it's going to be in China's best interest to actually have a stronger currency, not a weaker one. So the politicians, particularly Romney, is pretty aggressive about China and says that they're being unfair and they're part of the WTO and they should open up their trade practices more and let their currency float. Is that the likely scenario of what you think is going to happen here? You know, while I agree with Romney on a lot of fronts, I don't know if he's got the clout to push that through. It just seems like the Chinese do whatever the Chinese want to do. And we can act like we tell them to jump and they would say how high, but I'm not really sure that's how that really works out. And it doesn't seem that China has really responded well to us in the past. I think China's going to do what China wants to do and whatever they feel is in the best interest. And I think they're big enough now to where they don't necessarily have to back down from the bullying of the U.S., and so what does that mean compared to China and the U.S. trade uh, where there's a lot of tension these days? We need yeah. their capital, um, and we also need their goods because a lot of stuff that they make, we don't, we don't even make here anymore. Yep, and a lot of that manufacturing is shifting to other uh, Asian nations that uh, where, where you can get cheaper labor, Vietnam and different places. So there's starting to be a shift in migration because Chinese labor is starting to become too expensive so it's getting pushed out into other more, even more emerging parts of Asia where you can get cheaper and cheaper labor so that these corporations can keep their profit margins as, as fat as possible. Okay, so let's start talking about the investment implications of uh, what you've talked about here. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, you see central bank easing around the world, uh, inflation coming down the road. It's not hit, hit quite yet. Uh, debt levels rising uh, sharply. Um, what is the best way to play that? As an investor, yeah, some of the best ways to play it, as far as currencies are concerned, are uh, go to places where um, the the regulation is favorable, where uh, capital is flowing uh, to them, and where the unemployment is low. So that would be places like Singapore, which are becoming a financial center, and probably in ten years uh, will be, you know, possibly a bigger financial center even than New York City which I know at this time is hard to believe, but I believe that day is coming even if I'm off, you know, a few years on the on the, the timing. So Singapore's dollar is definitely uh, one. Um, commodity-based uh, currencies I think will do well because of inflation being stoked and because they don't tend to cheapen their currency as much, uh, which is the Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar, and Canadian dollars. So I think as far as currencies are concerned, that's probably some of your best four best places to uh, to be. And so how would you do that? Would you do that through exchange-traded funds or buying actually currencies? Or what would be the easiest way to play those four currencies? There's there are different levels of aggression. Uh, somebody can go with a foreign currency CD that they could pick up at like a everbank.com, which is a U.S.-based bank that has foreign currency CDs. It's a conservative way to play it. You could get a little bit more aggressive by going with ETFs in a stock brokerage account. Um, there's uh, currency shares has ETFs that uh, that track most all these major currencies. 
Um, so that's another way. And then, of course, your most aggressive way is to go to the leveraged Forex market, open a uh, Forex account, and trade it that way. But that is definitely the most aggressive way to do that. So what should it take for somebody to want to trade a foreign exchange? Uh, how much capital should they start with? Should they quit their day job and just spend full time at this? Or kind of what's, What kind of commitment is involved to make that work? Yeah, they should definitely not quit their day job, and and uh, if they want to dabble in it, dabble in it like a, I don't know, like a guy goes and starts learning how to play golf on the weekends or something like that, but keeps his day job. I think that's exactly what somebody should do with trading. Definitely don't um, leave any jobs to to trade because most people, even if they're successful, they're not successful enough to replace their job income. It's it's a pipe dream that most have, and just you know, most people are not talented enough. Um, in that area to be able to do that, and there's a lot of people that do it unsuccessfully and then have to go back to uh, to work, so I would not suggest that at all. So if you wanted to dabble in foreign exchange trading, uh, you should do it on a fundamental basis or technical, but what would be the way you'd follow to make that happen? Um, the way I do it is really a combination of both. <clears throat> um, I think you, you judge things by the fundamentals because that way you know whether you've got something rock solid or not. So you can you can tell whether money flows are heading in the direction of that currency, are their interest rates higher, which would attract more uh, uh, more inflows because of a higher yield. Um, do, do they tend to want to devalue their currency or, or let it appreciate? So th- th- there's, those are the fundamental factors. Then the technical factors I think are important because anytime you're in a trading environment or a leveraged market, you have to try to optimize the element of timing, and fundamentals have a hard time doing that, and that's where charting and technical analysis and technical indicators come in. They don't necessarily make it to where you can ring a bell at the bottom or get out of the exact top by any stretch, but they do help you to hone and lessen periods during turnaround periods. So for somebody who doesn't want to actually trade currencies directly, the ETFs may be a better way to go is what you're saying. It is because, you know, in the leveraged market, you can be right uh, and where you think something's going in the next month or two months or three months and be wrong enough in the near term to where you get margin called out or stopped out. Whereas if you have a big fundamental belief that the Canadian dollar or Australian dollar is going to do good over the next six months, year, 18 months, you can buy a currency ETF, not have to, you know, worry about uh, the extra leverage and, and excessive volatility and just go at it that way. How about the leveraged ETFs? Now, some of them are double, are there, I don't know if they're even triple leveraged ETFs, both long and short. Uh, some people complain they don't really track the underlying uh, currency, in this case, or index that carefully. Does that work in the uh, currency markets? Yeah, I would, I would not do uh, double leveraged um, ETFs. Pretty much the double leveraged ETFs, in, in, my, in my opinion, work best for the intraday trader or possibly somebody that might be in a trade for a few days. But that's about it uh, because they do, they do not track uh, the underlying currencies like they should. So is there something being done to improve that or is it just the way it's always going to be? I think it's probably the way it's always going to be um, because, of course, you have so many people that are so nearsighted in, in markets these days anyway to where they would really rather day trade than, than swing trade for weeks or months or, or long-term position trade. So I think the enticement is, is to trade very, very actively because that's more sexy, but I don't think that's the way the most money is, is to be made. So you're saying for most conservative investors, the best way is to buy an ETF in the four strong currencies you talked about and just 
leave it alone and it'll work well in the long run. Yes. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, currencies are certainly one way to play it. Uh, another way is to buy commodities themselves. Now, lately, uh, there's a lot of commodity bears out there. They're saying China is slowing. Uh, Australia just, just is not going to go ahead with one of its mines. That uh, there's been a slowdown in commodity demand. Uh, is, is that a temporary situation, or, or why would you still invest in commodities with all that negative sentiment out there? Well, I think the you know news news media and, and everything that's in the headlines is always really behind uh, real time what's actually happening. And I think months ago that definitely was still the case, and there was still slowing. Um, and a lot of times the media is behind because fundamental. Um, reporting is behind because typically you'll find out how you're doing, you know, uh, in other words, th things are usually delayed by like a quarter or so. So uh, usually you'll find out when things are bottomed in hindsight three or six months out into the future. So there's always that lag time there. So what I do is instead of uh, listening to the media so much on that, I just I follow the charts. You know, I look, you know, what is copper doing? What is steel doing? What is oil doing? What's the CRB index doing? And the, you know these have been lifting uh, as of late, so it's a it's hard to sell me on China is still slowing down and the world is still not buying commodities because they're starting to turn back up. Now it would not have been a hard sell months ago because they were still falling, but right now I believe that uh, we are in a, in a very mild recovery, and you're starting to see China and some other countries buying up commodities again. So you're saying the markets. Speak more loudly than words. So you just have to. The markets know the direction of these things before people start talking about it. Yeah, because they, you know, like they start buying. For instance, before you really get, you know, a GDP growth, you, you've got a, you've got a, a wholesaler, a company that's got to buy materials for a product. So they buy it ahead of time. They make the product, then they sell it. The customer buys it. And, and the company grows, and then collectively, you know, as enough companies do this, GDP grows. So, but the, but that whole chain starts with they got to buy the the raw material that they need to make their products. So you'll see it, you know, start first there um, with a lot of your raw materials, and then later on you'll see it show up in improved corporate numbers uh, as far as earnings, and then later on in GDP data. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. Uh, he is a trader in the currency markets and other financial markets. He's the editor of a newsletter called The Ultimate Wealth Report. And a website to find out more about that is ccurrencywars.com. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. 
Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. He is the author of and the editor of The Ultimate Wealth Report. Uh, welcome back to the show, Sean. Good to be here. So we talked about uh, inflation that's going to be coming because of all the central banks printing all this money. So we talked about uh, the currencies, the strong four currencies, exchange-traded funds for those. Uh, and then another way to do it is to buy commodities directly, uh, not through futures, but through uh, exchange-traded funds and so on. What are some commodities that you would like today, and, and what's the best way for people to buy them if they want to get go direct? Yeah, I think that a lot of commodities that have been beaten down are the way to go because I think they're the mispriced and undervalued assets. So I would avoid the stuff that's in the news headlines, things like corn, wheat, and soybeans, and I would go for the stuff that everybody seems to be overlooking and avoiding, like uh, cocoa has just started a new uptrend, and uh, it can be tracked through uh, ETF symbol NIB. Uh, so that's N as in Nancy, NIB. And then... Um, uh, another one, of course, is that's being overlooked right now is coffee uh, as well. It seems to be bottoming and, and perking up lately, and that uh, ETS symbol is Joe, J-O. Uh, so those are two examples of uh, some commodities, I believe, that are due for an upturn that will, you know, six to 12 months from now will be far higher than what they are right now. So these are moving on supply-demand reasons or the kind of uh, reflationary uh, you know, all the money printing we've talked about. Is that the reason that they're moving? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I think some of it is uh, supply-demand, but then I think there's a lot of people who, if they question commodities before, um, are, are more likely to invest in commodities and commodity-related stocks now, knowing that some of the major central banks around the world are uh, are stimulating their economy. You've got you know three uh, printing money, and then you've got China spending $100 billion on infrastructure spending, which is their own form of stimulation as well. So four major economies of the world. Uh, so that bodes well for commodities. Okay, so you're talking about co- cocoa and coffee. Uh, mm-hmm. How about uh, gold? What is your uh, outlook for gold? It's, it's had a big run, uh, but do you think it will go much higher? Yeah, I am bullish on gold. Uh, I do believe that gold will go back to its old highs of 1900 and, our, uh, and eventually 2000 and and. and so, you know, take, really take out the old highs and go into new highs. Um, I do think 
that it's run pretty far, pretty fast in the near term, and we could probably see a bit of a retracement. So I'm bullish on gold, but I would rather see it pull back a bit before somebody got into it. And I think there will be other things that will probably go up bigger percentage-wise, such as silver, palladium, or platinum, which can all be tracked through ETFs as well. So um, let's concentrate on gold for a moment. Would you like the GLD, the pure play on gold, or do you like the gold mining shares, the GDX? What what is the best way to play gold? Um, I think the purest way to play it is GLD and go at it that way. Um, But if somebody wants a like a gold mining stock or something that's been uh, beaten down that uh, that I believe will head higher and, and possibly outpace the percentage gain of gold, then I would say go with one of the largest gold miners out there like Barrick Gold, which is ABX. Okay, and then you think silver is going to move up even faster than gold. Why would that be? Yeah, silver just tends to outpace and, and, and move uh, in bigger percentage terms and tends to be a lot more volatile both to the upside and the downside uh, than than gold is. Silver is kind of your more you know poor man's gold, and uh, it also has industrial uses as well that, that have uh, more demand and less demand put, put on it that cause it to be a lot more volatile as well. So um, when there's excessive money printing going on, I think it's a perfectly fine time to be in silver, uh, usually firstly in gold and secondarily in silver. Um, but then once it looks like the money printing game is starting to uh, ebb, usually one of the first ones you want to get out of is silver because it will turn around and die faster than gold. And so do you play silver through an SLV, a, a pure play on the ETF, or uh, some yeah. of the silver mining companies? How do you play silver? Yeah, I like SLV, which you know tracks the underlying commodity of silver, and then I also like SLW, uh, silver Wheaton, which tends to mimic um, silver as well. Okay, and then uh, you were saying uh, palladium and platinum are two others that you like for the same reasons. How would you play those? Yeah, you can uh, play uh, physical platinum through uh, the ETF PPLT. Um, it has shot up like crazy off of the uh, the South African mines being you know shut down and miners on strike and all this kind of stuff. Shot up tremendously and was in dire need of a pullback. It's probably pulled back most of the way now. Could fall a little further in the near term. But uh, PPLT looks a lot more enticing than it did just even a week ago. And then on palladium, uh, that would be symbol P-A-L-L. Um, and it, w- it, it kind of had the same thing that platinum did. It had this big, huge spike up uh, kind of following platinum, and uh, and it's pulled back quite a bit now. It's a lot more, uh, probably more healthy time to get into it now than it was even a week ago as well. So if you have a portfolio, what percentage of a portfolio of a typical investor should be in those four precious metals combined? You know, it, it tends upon somebody's level of aggression, but I think usually it's safe to have anywhere from 10 to 20% um, in a portfolio, particularly in times like this of when, when central banks are obviously trying to simulate and obviously printing money. So I think you can go on the higher side during those times if somebody wants to be more along the lines of 20% during those times, and then when that's not the case in those periods, probably something more along the lines of 10%. Okay, and so we have some in silver, gold, platinum, palladium. Uh, coffee and cocoa. Are there other mm-hmm. commodities uh, that you would like kind of pure plays on commodities as a way to play the um, central bank print money printing? Yeah, um, you, you, in combination with the central bank money printing and the Chinese um, $100 billion infrastructure program, I like um, two other ETFs. Uh, one is JJC, which is the copper ETF, 
Uh, it has recently broken upward and started a new uptrend within the last, uh, well, not even quite a month now. So that's JGC, which tracks copper. Uh, and then a secondary play, uh, which if somebody wanted to get in on this one, they definitely would want to use limit orders because it doesn't have quite as much volume. But uh, the steel ETF, uh, which is symbol SLX, and I think both of these will do well because of China's infrastructure spending, because of a mild um, economic recovery that we'll have, not a, not a major boom, uh, but a mild recovery, and because of the central bank printing money and stoking inflation. So the hottest commodities this summer have been grains because of the drought. It mm-hmm. really had enormous spikes in wheat and corn and soybeans and so on. Uh, in general, do you think that's a good play, or they've run too far? What is your view on those kind of grains? I think they've run too far and and are at best uh, fairly valued and at worst overvalued, and I tend to lean towards the latter right now. Anytime the the momentum crowd gets a hold of a commodity or stock or any asset, and anytime it spends too much time in the uh, limelight of the news, uh, typically you can almost bet money that the the true value has already been seized and realized and is out of that, and then the people that are late to the ball game are going to be the ones left holding the bag, and I just would not want to be one of those people. Okay, so those are really the ways you want to play commodities. Now, how about the stocks that mine commodities, the big mining companies around the world? Uh, is that a way for you to uh, play this, these trends as well? Yeah, I think anything from uh, you know ABX that we mentioned earlier, uh, BHP Billiton, uh, so that's BHP is the uh, the symbol, or uh, some other ways that uh, that this can be played. Um, even one that is probably a, a lot more speculative, but uh, BT, BTU, which is uh, Peabody, which uh, has to do with coal, so I know it's a lot more speculative right now, could be a possibly uh, like a second or third tier player in that group as well. People have been very, very down on coal. Coal prices have been falling. The EPA is trying to close down all these utilities using coal. So you, you think that's been overdone? I do think it's been overdone. Um, you know, is the world as a whole, particularly the industrialized world, using less coal? I think the answer would be yes. But I do think it's still a viable fuel for emerging economies. It's a cheaper way for them to get their energy. And so I think you're still going to see China, India, much of Asia, a lot of other countries still using it. And so I think that the price has swung uh, probably overshot to the downside on uh, coal just because the sentiment and the news has just hammered the heck out of, uh, out of, out of coal prices. And I guess another uh, fuel is nuclear and uranium. What is your view on uranium? Yeah, you know, uranium definitely is so on the speculative side. I, I tend to stay away from it. Um, it could go up, but there's so many other commodities that I have so much more confidence in um, I tend to stay away from uranium and some of those. Okay, so those are the main plays you would have on uh, commodities, either directly or through the miners. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, and there's commodity-related is, stocks as well, of course, that somebody can branch out into if they wish. Like what would be some examples there? Um, well, like, for instance, uh, natural gas has been, uh, you know, beaten down a lot, and I believe that it will, you know, natural gas will go from the twos and threes up to the fives and sixes over the coming months ahead. And so I believe uh, a company like ECA, which is in Canada, would uh, would do well and has has done well. It, it uh, bottomed in uh, May and has been heading up ever since. Um, and then uh, overlooked oil place uh, is another one that I like. Usually when people think oil these days, they're thinking Exxon Mobil and Chevron and things of that sort. But really I like to uh, pick up a 
former darling of the world, which has been a dog of the world uh, for the last couple of years, and that's Petrobras, the Brazilian uh, oil company, and that symbol PBR. Um, it's bottomed in July and it's been heading up ever since, and I think it's got you know a ton more left to go in it. So these are some uh, energy plays that I think that'll do well over the next you know nine to twelve months. We're going to get back to that. All right, we're going to take a break right now. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. He's the editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report. Uh, the website to find out more about it is ccurrencywars.com. And we'll be back after this. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. He's the editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report, uh, which is published by Money News and Newsmax. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Yeah, good to be back with you. Tell people a little bit about what they get when they uh, get a copy of the Ultimate Wealth Report. What are some of the things you cover in there? And, and if they subscribe, what do they get? Yeah, they get uh, in the mail or through email a uh, 12-page monthly newsletter where I go into detail of the fundamentals and the technicals of different uh, commodity-related stock picks and commodity ETFs that I like and in full detail as to why that I like them, what prices to buy them at, uh, what prices they can still be bought up to at and then later on when I feel it's uh, time to exit those. So really leaving no stone unturned, giving them uh, very, very direct uh, information to go off there. And what kind of a track record does the newsletter have? How long has it been around, and what kind of track record does it have? We we launched this about uh, five months ago. Um, all of our positions are positive. The average uh, return, I think, when you average them all, is like about twenty three to twenty four percent right now. So we're we're doing really well. Very good. So another area that you recommend 
either positively or negatively, are countries and exchange-traded funds that buy, uh, I guess, a bunch of stocks in a particular country. How do you pick those, and what are some of your favorites now? Yeah, I look for the places that are um, the most despised in the world at, at the time. I know it sounds funny, but, like, for instance, the euro crisis um, really caused a lot of Europe to go on sale because, they, you know, there was a time where, uh, the prevailing thought was that the euro could possibly break up and, uh, it was just, you know, gonna have many countries have to exit the euro and so every, everything was getting sold off in Europe. So the, the European stocks were getting sold off as a result, um, as well. And so the sentiment had gotten just horrendous, um, and, uh, in Italy, for instance, um, which is a G6 nation, you know, a huge, uh, economy, um, it had gotten down to a PE of eight, price earnings ratio of eight. Whereas uh, here in the U.S., we were at a P.E. of 16 on our, on our stock market. So it was just so on sale. It was like it was half off. And the, the dividends, of course, you know, you would see like a 4% dividend in that ETF versus, you know, like a 2% uh, in the S&P. And so uh, I just felt that it had a great uh, risk to reward. I felt that almost everybody was on one side of that trade and uh, that, you know, that they would have to reverse those positions and it would pop. And that's exactly what happened. We bought uh, EWI at $9.33 and it's trading at twelve seventy nine today. I think still quite a bit more left to go in it. So that's an ETF of Italian-based companies. Is that what that is? Yes. Yes, some of the largest Italian-based companies out there mimics a lot of the uh, Italian stock market overall, basically. So basically you're saying in Europe that things got very dark, but the central bank was going to come and save them. It weren't going to let places like Italy or Spain default, and, and even Greece. So, so Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you just can't – you might could lose a Greece, but you can't lose an Italy, you know. So, so that was my premise And that – also, when you track um, fundamental valuations going back, uh, when you track big, large indices and, and, and big groups of stocks, if you get a big basket of stocks trading out of PE that's in the single digits, um, while you can't claim that it's the exact bottom, if you buy in during those times, usually within months from there, there you'll you'll be well back into the double digits at PEs of 12, 15, 16, and so you get some pretty huge uh, pops, and those opportunities don't come along all the time, but we are living in, in those times where a few of those opportunities have presented themselves. Um, another one is uh, Austria, which is uh, EWO, and of course they're in a lot better fundamental shape than, than Italy. They're trading uh, at a PE of 10 right now, um, which is still at a far discount to what we're trading at, and it's got a dividend yield of 3.4%, which is a lot more healthy than uh, in, than our major indices as well. So, you know, as, as a lot of people are finding out that they've overly beaten up Europe and gone too far, which is very common in markets, um, it produced a lot of value there because greed produces things and takes things too far, too high than they should have been, and fear takes things and, and overly beats them up even further than they deserved. And both of those scenarios create opportunities and mispricings in the market to be taken advantage of. So what is hated today uh, that is way out of favor that you think is undervalued? Well, I think we're still, you know, I think still uh, Italy and Austria are still two prime candidates that I, I think over the next, you know, six to 12, possibly 18 months are going to be um, doing very well. Basically, I see them um, in the same light that I saw um, the, uh, the the Dow and the S&P uh, when it was um, you know, bottoming out back in uh, 08, 09. And so if, if somebody missed that uh, bandwagon of, of, of those stocks bottoming out, heading up, and they want another shot at it, in my opinion, 
the sentiment is so negative on uh, most all of Europe that that's where you can find that. Uh, again, it's in Italy and Austria. Germany and France and some of the others actually have come up quite a bit like U.S. stocks, so the value is really not there to be had in those. What is the, the outlook for Europe as far as turning things around? They have all these structural problems with the kind of inflexible labor market and a huge amount of debt and a high public sector. Are they going to be able to turn that around and become more capitalistic and ultimately prosperous? Um, the jury's still out on that one. It's hard to tell. Uh, I know that there's still got a lot of uh, structural problems. Uh, to me, anytime you have a common currency among a lot of different cr- uh, countries, you're going to have a lot more problems uh, than countries who who don't. Um, so if you said interest rate policy for what's good for Germany, uh, it may or may not be what's good for you know, Greece or Spain or what have you. So there's a lot of, a lot of issues there that, that does muddy the waters. But, uh, even still, um, in investing, it's really not are things bad or, or, or are things good, but how is a stock or an asset priced relative to the situation out there? And so that's why, you know, that's why we got into Italy when we did. It's not that I thought, well, here's the moment Italy starts to turn around. It's just that this is the moment where the prices are mispriced. They will go up in the future to something more normal. So if the S&P is at 16 and Italy only came back to P of 12 and it's a P of 9, then we're going to do very well on that uh, on that asset. It definitely takes some courage to go in there and buy when everything looks like it's falling apart, though. I mean, there's a psychological element of this as well. It does. I mean, I've been doing it a long time, so I've got a lot of confidence in it. You know, 20 plus years in in, in markets will, will give that to you. That's the benefit of that. But um, I think the the other side of that coin is chasing what everybody else chases, chase the momentum, chase the hot stocks, chase what's on the news, and those are almost always at least fairly or overvalue um, over their value in, in pricing. And so at best, you would just mimic the S&P 500's returns with probably taking on more risk. And at worst, you would most likely underperform it like, you know, most mutual funds do each year. So what would be some examples of things that are chased and, and overvalued today? Um, I mean, most of it is in the commodity area. So, I mean, it's it's been your corn, corn soybean, and wheat and things of that sort. Um, some other things, uh, like a stock, an individual stock, for instance, would be uh, Amazon would probably be on the top of my list, um, AMZN. You know, the PE is just uh, very high, and for me, I don't know why you would buy an Amazon when you could buy an Apple. And I know Apple is high priced, but it's not necessarily high compared to its uh, PE valuation, and they're in a lot better fundamental shape. So I would, I would not – in fact, there's probably a trade to be had in – you know, doing something like buying an Apple and simultaneously shorting Amazon <laughs> because Amazon's valuations have to go down or at least it has to trade sideways and let the earnings catch up to it, and Apple can still expand. Another area you seem to like is oil, which is a commodity we haven't talked about yet. Uh, what is your view on, on long-term oil price trends? Yeah, I think uh, oil uh, has no choice but to head higher. I, I think that we're past the worst of the economic uh, downturn. We are on a recovery cycle uh, that will alone cause more demand and push uh, push prices up. But then with all these other central banks of the world stimulating and printing money, um, that, that adds a secondary amount of fuel to the fire. 
that will cause oil prices to to head higher. So, you know, could could it dip a little more in the near term, go from the low 90s to you know the mid 80s or something like that? It absolutely could. But ultimately, you know, it's going you know 100, 105, 110, 115. Um, and so there's there's more upside potential than there is downside risk, in my opinion, in oil. And what would be your favorite way to play that rise in oil prices? Um, you know, you can you can take a little bit more of a pure play if you just want to talk about tracking oil and go with something like USO uh, is is the symbol that tracks that, or UGA if you want to talk about tracking gasoline prices and and that because the oil dynamic is such a huge uh, component of gas prices. Um, or you can go with something you know like the uh, the PBR Petrobras, which I like better just because you get a uh, you know, a little bit of a dividend with that, and uh, an enormous company that's just been um, the, the sentiment's been horrible for because all things got beaten down, Brazilian and emerging market, and so the good got taken out with the bad, and it just posed a lot of value there. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Sean Hyman. Uh, he is the editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report. Again, a website you can go to to find out more about it is ccurrencywars.com. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, good input about all the different ways you can play what he sees as a commodity-based inflation boom coming around the, the world. So thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Sean. Glad to have been here. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.